do you become CEO of Keep New Zealand Beautiful? Is there, do you go to, do you go to a school for it? I'm not sure that you go to a school for it per se. Um, my background, I ran law societies in the States for about 10 years. So I came from a highly political um, career. And when I moved to New Zealand, I made a conscious decision that I wanted to work within the community. Um, did a lot of volunteer work, and it's kind of where my, where my heart was. And so when the role for Keep New Zealand Beautiful came up, I applied for it. I don't, want to, I, I don't want to cast any dispersions against uh, the law world, but is this, are you paying penance for that life <laughs> by cleaning up litter? Um, I know that attorneys or solicitors are the butt of many jokes, but they're actually really good people, and you always have a bad apple in every bunch, no matter what profession. Um, no, part and parcel of what I did was also run the Bar Foundation. And so we worked with a lot of schools, a lot of charitable groups, and we managed to raise over a million dollars for Waveland, Mississippi. So that was uh, Hurricane Katrina relief efforts. Um, our intention was to rebuild a courthouse, and we actually wound up rebuilding part of a town, which was pretty cool. And I think having done that and having worked within so many silos of the community, it was um, an area that I wanted to explore more. And for the record, um, waste is far more political than actual politics. So mm. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. Um, I thought that Keep New Zealand Beautiful was just a really great feel-good organization. But when you're looking at the waste issue, I think probably globally it is highly political. Yeah, I, I do apologize for the last shot. I went for a cheap shot. Um... No, no, not at all. <laughs> but it's... So it seems like um, it seems like there's always been that kind of social enterprise element to uh, to your career path. Is that is that fair to say? I think that's where uh, when I moved to New Zealand, it was a conscious change in direction. Um, I, I knew what I wanted to do. It was just a matter of finding the right role that I could sink my teeth into. What but yeah, that? I think any anybody that's ever volunteered, I mean. The reality is they continue to do it because it makes them feel good at the end of the day. So if you're able to combine your passion with your profession, you can't really be winning any more at life than that. And what was the draw to New Zealand? My husband is Kiwi. Um, So (laughs) I met Chris at an American Bar Association conference in Hawaii in 2006. They lost my luggage, um, so I wound up at a tiki bar because I only had a bathing suit on my person, and that night I met my husband. <laughs> oh, that's really cool. Yeah. So was it, you know, how, how, apart from, uh, you know, some of the differences in terms of uh, your career, how have, you found, how have you found New Zealand in general? I mean, I think at that time i wasn't necessarily thinking of children but i couldn't imagine raising my children anywhere else having been here now um you know when i left high school there were metal detectors in philadelphia so that was kind of my upbringing and after visiting new zealand on many occasions before i decided to move here it was just such um a different uh, a different country a different atmosphere um and yeah, once we had children, I think it kind of solidified this is where we're meant to be and we're meant to stay. Mm. So hands down, one of the most beautiful places that I've ever experienced um, or had the, the honor of visiting and, and staying long term. But the, the people are amazing, too. I mean, it's definitely a, a great grassroots network, especially when you look at Keep New Zealand Beautiful and all the amazing people that I get to work with. It's, it's an honor. Mm. 
You're talking about the metal detectors and, and going to schools at, at that point in, in time, but what, what, what do you make of it when you look at what's happening in the States at the moment? In the States or in the, the, the world? Um, I don't think that anyone would have guessed that 2020 would bring such um, surprises. I mean, it's definitely been a different time to navigate through, I think, from any industry, from, from any person. It's difficult, especially when you're looking at um, expats such as myself, you know, not being able to see your family and knowing that there's the potential of losing someone. Um, and also in New Zealand, I mean, when we're in lockdown levels, it's, it's the same. So I think globally, it's, um, you know, we're, we're in the midst of a pandemic. And I think everyone has their personal struggles. Businesses have their own struggles. I think the waste sector has been affected greatly by the pandemic, and that's probably not something that's going to cease anytime soon. So, yeah, I don't, I don't want to get into the, the politics of the U.S. per se. I think it's just been an interesting time globally, and people have had to adapt in many ways, shapes, and forms. And so how is it, if we, if we look at um, some of those shifts that you're talking about, how is it, how is it affected, say, Keep New Zealand Beautiful? How has it affected the work that you're doing, even, the, even kind of the public sentiment, even the relationship with, uh, say, government support? What, what sort of shifted in 2020 for you? Um, in 2020, we no longer received funding from central government. So that's been an um, interesting time to try to navigate through, especially with all that we've achieved over the past three years. So last year alone, we educated 443,000 primary students, and I think about 23,000 uh, 11 to 19 year olds, so intermediate slash college students. Um, about the importance of waste, their environment, littering, recycling. Um, so we made you know, massive, massive headway in the past three years. Uh, we also galvanized, I think, 52,000 volunteers last year during cleanup week, which if you look at, say, two hours of work for each volunteer, that's about $1.8 million minimum wage of you know, people power. Um, so without that funding, I'm not quite sure that our programming will be able to sustain the way that it, it has. Um, and in terms of waste, I think you're seeing a lot of medical waste now that you haven't seen before. And a lot of that is winding up in our, our water. So I know that there's been a big push to clean up our coastlines, and that's very important. But I think it's also important to note that over 80% of what's actually found in our waterways comes from land. Mm -hmm. So if you don't start with the land, then there's no way that we can actually really make a difference in terms of our coastal environment. Yeah, I understand. I mean, there's... Yeah, it gets it gets really political all of a sudden. But what what is what has shifted? Is is, is there is it that we are more focused on the coastline, or is it just that there's there's only so much money to go around? What's what's been the shift there in terms of that decision making? I mean, I think that COVID has impacted numerous streams of funding. You know, hands down, that's definitely played a part. Um, I, I couldn't really speak to why the, the funding was pulled. Um, all I can say is over the past three years, we've done a comprehensive national litter audit and everything was transparent. So we did several areas for each council. We did a mix of highways and railways. We worked in with the Ministry for Environment, Stats NZ, as well as the Department of Conservation. Um, the most robust um, piece of research that's been done on litter in New Zealand. And I think from that, it gave us a good starting point in terms of baseline data. This is what the litter issue looks like. But in order to track how much is accumulating, you, additional research is required. 
Um, so in terms of funding, I think that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. And in the next three years, the waste levy, so every time you go to a TIP, you have to pay between four, it's a, a sliding scale. So let's say it's a, a car full of rubbish, um, $40. So that's going to be increasing significantly over the next three years. So what currently is a funding pool of about $12 million from that landfill levy is going to become close to $300 million. So that means your little carload to the tip could quadruple in the next three years. And for the most part, I think waste will be on the rise, illegal dumping and littering. Because when you look at people who litter or people that just throw the stuff out the back of their truck, it comes down to one of two things, laziness and cost. Mm. Um, so I think that it's a, a narrow scope to not be looking forward at when, once that happens over the next three years, you know, waste is going to be on the rise, in particular in rural areas and on roadsides. Um, highways and railways were, were the worst, according to our research. I live in a beautiful area in Auckland, and every time I take my kids to school, there's always a new, a new t tipping place. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, as times change, people become smarter about it as well. Like they know if council's on to this spot, then they just move on to the next spot. So I think that there does need to be an infrastructure and an investment around litter and illegal dumping, and that's something that the cent that central government needs to take into consideration. Hey, yeah, I've been, I've been quite shocked, actually. I, I live out... Titterangi, which is meant to be a beautiful part of Auckland as well. And I've been making a concerted effort uh, after the second lockdown to lose some of the weight that I put on with all the sourdough production uh, in the first hey. lockdown. So I've been doing lots of dog walking and I have been quite surprised at just how much, uh, how much rubbish and not just litter, but actual dumping there is on the, on the side of the road in some very beautiful areas. Mm. What is, can you talk to the psychology of that? I understand that it is about cost and, uh, and laziness, but is there something else going on there where we have such a disregard for our environment? I think it's a lack of education. Um, so I think education, uh, there needs to be a, a national umbrella in terms of education. And so what we've done over the past three years was focus on the littlies because they're the ones that you need to instill that be a tidy kiwi message into. And then they'll go home to their moms and their dads and say, that's not okay. You can't do that. Um, I think we've also been very effective at visualizing, you know, how much rubbish is collected over, let's say, a one week time span cleanup week. And I think that that's something that people relate to. But, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, Be a Tidy Kiwi was kind of ingrained in, in Kiwi's essence. And that was when we had government funding. So, you know, over the past 20 years, this was the first time that we'd actually received government funding. And we were highly effective in what we were able to achieve. Um, but, you know, in order to continue that momentum and really instill that, that mantra and, and making sure that people have pride in their community, and, and changing behaviors, because you can't just look at the littlies, you also have to look at the people that are doing it and getting them to understand what the environmental impacts of that are. But it's not cheap to be effective. Um, and all of the money that, that we were provided with went into programming, went into education, not just for littlies, but for consumers. And the 15 to 40 year old demographic, primarily male, sorry, um, are the worst offenders when it comes to littering and dumping. So I think that you also need to look at campaigns that are targeted to those specific demographics to be effective. Um, you know, a feel-good commercial that's, um, you know, looking at Sally, who's 62 years old in Taranaki, probably isn't going to be effective because Sally isn't the one that's doing the, the, the dumping. 
again, I know, I know we might be kind of drilling down into uh, in the psychology, but what what is it? What is what is it that's going to get through to uh, to these people? Do you think? Um, I think to a fifteen year old, if you're able to equate, this is how much councils actually spent on littering and illegal dumping this year, and this is how many basketball courts that could have been built with this amount of money. I think that resonates with them if they're into basketball or a skate park. I mean, looking at the various community connections, you know, what, what are the kids involved in? What is it that would make them take a step back and say, wow, we could have had 10 basketball courts this year. Um, but most councils aren't able to ascertain their spend because they've got various contracts. So you've got parks and rec and part of their purview is to look after waste around the parks. So they pick up the litter and the rubbish. You've got street and, you know, highway um, contracts. So they're, they're, you've got all of these different contracts that are looking at waste, and it's really difficult to pinpoint how much of that contract was actually spent on litter and illegal dumping. So I think that there's some work that needs to be done in that space, but I think that with that work, you also need to speak to the people in your community. What is it that they would want in the community that if you were able to offset that cost for litter and illegal dumping, you could invest in a community infrastructure mm. and community buy-in? Has there, you know, we, I mean, we're talking a lot about the, uh, the negatives. Have, have there been any positives as well? Like we've seen in other areas and in terms of environmental considerations, some of the benefits of, say, you know, having, a, having some lockdown uh, time, giving the world a bit of a break, and then we see yeah. the birds and we see the clear skies and all that kind of stuff. Have you noticed, is there a bit of a change of people starting to take more pride in... Um, and where they live and the surrounding areas and, and that kind of thing. Is there a, is there another side to this conversation as well? Um, I can't, I can't say that I've seen people take more pride for the most part. The people that we work with are, they're sustainable warriors. You know, they're the ones that are out there every day getting stuck in, be it tree plantings or speaking with a local school or doing cleanup initiatives. So I guess I, I see the positives of, of what we do and the people that we're associated with on a daily basis. I know over lockdown, litter and illegal dumping was virtually little to none. Mm -hmm. And our environment, you know, you saw the whales in Wellington and there were, you know, the dolphins were swimming up in, in the canals of Italy. So clearly there's a correlation between people and the impact that we're having on the environment and our native life, our, our birds, our sea life. Um, and I think that when we came out of lockdown, you saw a huge influx of rubbish when it came to takeaway packaging, when, when some of the fast food chains were able to open. So it really, you know, I think it's twofold. It's, it's one working with industry leaders because whilst it's, it's about personal responsibility, you know, we need to change the behavior of people that are throwing their takeaways out of their car window. I think it's also making sure that the takeaways are in the most sustainable packaging that they can be in so that they're not harming fish and they're not harming our wildlife. There is a, it, again, in terms of the environmental side of things, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of talk about the new generation coming through. And it's not just the Greta Thunbergs out there speaking to the UN and the whole generation of people that have t stolen her childhood. But there are, um, there are kids that really care about doing stuff. And you, and you support um, you know, the, the young reporters for the environment uh, side of things. Is there, I mean, what are you, what are you seeing in terms of this, in terms of the school children and the new generation coming in? Is there hope in that respect that, you know, there would just be a mindset kind of flush? 
Absolutely. I mean, I think that the, the children are our future, no pun intended. Um, but they're very environmentally conscious. I mean, I've got a lot of friends that say to me, you know, my nine-year-old comes home and tells me what I can and can't recycle and how I should be doing things differently. And I think that that's good. I mean, it's clear that, you know, and it's not just us. There are various other um, organizations in the space that are making great headway. And you know, education is first and foremost. And then I think it's looking at behavior change for people that are outside of that particular demographic. But Young Reporters for the Environment, it's also about changing tack. So we've got Kiki, Kiwi and Friends, which is a resource that we produced in 2018. And that went out to every primary school. And we had a follow-up book that went out last year. Um, and Kiki's really cool, you know, for a, a 5 to an 11-year-old. But I don't think that a 15-year-old boy Kiki will necessarily resonate with. So Young Reporters for the Environment, you know, it's, it's journalism, it's videography, it's photography. And I think it's about engaging with people in different ways. And to an 11 to, to 19-year-old, you know, there's an opportunity, or there was an opportunity for international travel. Um, so we've had many finalists that have gone to uh, all across Europe, and one actually became a UN ambassador from that program. So, yeah, I think the, the education, the, the, the children are really environmentally conscious of, you know, what we're bringing home as parents about packaging, about how things can be done better. And I think that's phenomenal. And, and we have lots of community groups and, you know, councils are making great headway, too. So it's not all doom and gloom. Um, there's some great work that's being done in New Zealand, and that should be applauded. So in, in terms of where you sit in amongst this, what happens What happens without this central government support? Like, is there a, is there a pathway for you? What do you need to do? Um, working on alternative funding streams, um, partnerships. But again, partnerships, you know, it's very, um, we need to ensure that whoever we align with, there's no greenwashing, that these organizations, industry organizations are actually walking the talk. And so that's always a bit of a delicate balance. Sometimes partnerships fall through because of that. And also looking at philanthropic, but I think our hope is that we can still work with central government because it's clear that there's still a lot of work to be done. That's a good point. I mean, collaboration is one of those. There's been a few buzzwords in 2020, but collaboration is one of those ones that, you know, that is uh, bandied about a lot. Um, so is that, and I, and I see that you have corporate support and an element of philanthropy there is that is there more opportunity for for other people to get involved and support what you do for other industry to to get behind you always um i mean i think it's important for industry and consumers to own their part you know we galvanize over a hundred thousand volunteers every year and they're amazing and a large pool of that is composed of young people um, but we also do work with a lot of businesses to kind of facilitate events for them to, to show them how they can reduce their environmental footprint. And we work with some industry leaders in, in the green space, you know, people that are um, actually, they are walking the talk and they've got fantastic initiatives and are rolling out some amazing um, greener products in the next year or two. Um, there's always an opportunity to work together. And we work with a lot of not-for-profits too, as well as schools. So I think collaboration is key, especially when you're looking at a country like New Zealand, where you have a very small pool of funding. And I think per capita, the largest amount of charities. Um, so, you know, a lot of charities, but a, a very small pie to, to feed from. Um, so it, it's imperative that we all work together, especially those that are in similar spaces. 
Yeah, it's again one of those another one of those buzzwords is is pivot. Um, have you had to shift? Have you had to like in terms of making the funding work? Have you had to kind of shift some of your uh, some of your approach and look at other ways of monetizing. I know you've got the merchandise side of things. Are you looking at other other kind of ways to work in and function with industry and and maintain what you're able to do? We we have a few iron a few irons in the fire. Um, we do need to pivot, and we are shifting. Um, but it has impacted us. You know, we went from a team of eight that were six part timers to a team of four part timers, including myself. So, you know, organizationally, the structure's changed. And I think with that, you know, all of the programming that we do, we provide free seedlings for Plant New Zealand Beautiful. We provide free graffiti kits for people that have graffiti in their communities and want to clean it out or paint, paint it out, I should say. Um, I think this year we had 57,000 volunteers. We did extend cleanup week for two weeks in light of the pandemic. But out of those 57,000, we probably sent out 32,000 kits. So we pay for all of that, the kits, the health and safety kits, the stickers, the badges, the certificates for the kids, the courier fees. Um, so I would imagine that next year's programming will probably look much more scaled back unless we are in a position to diversify or get some additional partners on board. So how, how has it been personally for you to go through these changes to, you know, be a leader for your team and uh, kind of share sharing some of the some of the stress some of the some of the some of the weight of responsibility can you talk through that process and how that's been um when i first started with the organization it was just myself working part-time and we were actually sharing office space with one of our local branches so we have about 41 branches nationwide um you know keep hut city beautiful keep lower hut beautiful etc so that was the manicow beautification trust um, for about three years, I worked to try to get us back to our roots, you know, to grow the organization slowly but surely. And I think, you know, with that lack of funding over 20 years, it was about looking at who we were and how can we get back to that place. Um, so we were, we were very successful and, and we grew a small but mighty team. And we were fortunate enough to get funding in 2016. Um, so it took about a year to work through the project plan. And then there was a change in government. So a lot of the, the work that we had done, it was trying to work through you know, a new government, had new, new action plans. Um, but ultimately, over the, the three years, we had tremendous wins. I mean, I can't, I, I look fondly upon the work that we did, and we achieved everything that we set out to do. Um, I think it's unfortunate that that work was cut so short, especially after 20, 20 years in, in an organization like Keep New Zealand Beautiful, which is one of the more iconic brands in New Zealand. And you've been given an opportunity to prove yourself, and you have. Um, and then, you know, you're back to square one again. It's, it's disheartening. Um, I mean, the, the team and the amount of effort that they've put in, the volunteers, the branches, the board. But I think at the end of the day, we still have to just celebrate the small wins. And it's about, you know, looking back at what we achieved and we say, we, we did it, you know, we're, we're still going to, we will survive. Um, it might look a lot different. Um, but also just looking at areas of community programming. And, and again, I think it's important to recognize individuals, schools, um, communities, councils that are doing great work. So even though we lost the funding, we still decided that we were going to do that this year with our beautiful awards program. And we've had just an amazing um, selection of, of people and schools and communities and councils and businesses that are doing 
amazing things. And I think that in light of everything that's happening with us financially, you know, you're still able to look at all of these people and all of these schools and, and say there's still really great grassroots work being done in New Zealand. And, you know, we've been a part of that for over 53 years and we'll still be a part of that. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been difficult, but I think it's probably been difficult for most businesses in New Zealand. I don't know anyone that hasn't been affected by COVID. Um, and I think just COVID combined with, you know, a lack of funding, it's been an interesting, interesting ride. Mm. But I've been with the organization for almost nine years. And I've been with, you know, when we were very, very lean to when we were still lean, but we were able to do great things and back to being somewhat lean again. And just to go back to that thing about the weight on your shoulders, you mentioned it being one of New Zealand's most iconic brands. Does that come with an extra amount of weight as well? Like, are you are you feeling like you don't want to bugger things up? I mean, no one wants to be the captain on the ship that's going down, to be honest. Um, and I think it was, you know, I wasn't familiar with the brand. I wasn't really that familiar with the organization when I applied outside of the job description and the then website. But my husband was like, oh, my gosh, are they still around? Like, they were huge back when I was a kid. And, and you know, before my interview, Chris showed me the singing rubbish bin that's on YouTube, Do the Right Thing. And he, he knew all the words. Um, so I think it was an honor to work with, uh, you know, such an iconic brand. And a lot of people didn't realize that Keep New Zealand Beautiful was still around. You know, the impact that we had, there's, there seems to be a misconception. We were central government back in the 60s and 70s. And we didn't actually become a separate charity until 1984. So we were the Anti-Litter Council and then the Litter Commission. Um, so 1967, Anti-Litter Council and then 1979, Litter Commission. And back when we were central government was when, you know, that mantra that be a tidy Kiwi, do the right thing made such great strides because we had the funding. And so it was instilled in, you know, in Kiwi's um, being, if you will. Um, so it's humbling to, to be part of such an iconic organization. And I guess it's, it's my role just to make sure that we maintain the course and look at how we can we can do that. This might be this might be real funding 101 so you'll have to excuse me as i try and bluff my way through this part of it. but how does it work with uh with local governments as well i mean i imagine that councils have to spend a lot of money on you know picking up picking up rubbish and and sorting out dumping areas surely surely it's in their interest to cut that before it gets to the point where they've got to clean it up so we have memberships and about two thirds of local councils support us via membership, which is fantastic. So it's an opt-in, it's not mandatory. Um, and we do work in with a lot of councils. A lot of our branches are actually council-led. So they employ someone to look after, you know, keep Dunedin beautiful. Um, and that's, that's fantastic. So yeah, with local government, we have great relationships. It's, been a foundation I think that's been built on from from day one so when we were the anti-litter council and the litter control council we worked in with local government very well and that's probably been a theme that's that's translated across through many decades now um, but in terms of funding keep New Zealand beautiful outside of memberships I think that most councils it is one of the difficult things you know waste is very expensive and you know the onerous of enforcement. So if you 
are caught throwing someone or someone dobs you out for, for chucking something out of your car. Um, it's very difficult for counsel to prove that it was you. You know, you could say it was my girlfriend in the car or, so I think councils are very restricted with what they can do right now with the Litter Act as well. So there does need to be an overhaul that allows them more flexibility in terms of enforcing the law. And I think that working with us in terms of a national overarching um, educational component and behavior change component is, is necessary too. But again, funding's required. And in terms of the, the volunteer side of things, can you, can you talk about, I'm really intrigued by, uh, by charities and, and people with a vision who are able to get the kind of support that you get from, um, from, from the volunteers that you have. Is there something kind of special in the vision or in the mix, you know? What does it take to, to, to inspire that many people to give up their time? So our mission is education, inspiration, and empowerment. So we educate through our educational programs. I think we inspire through our community pride programs, such as Clean Up Week, Plant New Zealand Beautiful, Paint New Zealand Beautiful. And then we empower through knowledge. So that's the research components that we've been focused on over the past several years. I think people want to do the right thing. And I think it's very easy to take your kids to go to a, a rubbish pickup down the road from your house. And it's an hour of your time. And afterwards, it's, it's feel good. You know, my kids play here. It's a clean area for them again. Um, and so most people want to do that. You know, it's, it's their little neck of New Zealand. It's their home. They don't want to see rubbish everywhere. Um, I also think that because we provide everything for you for free, you know, if you're a school that wants to do a tree planting, you call us up, how many seedlings, uh, what type of seedlings, then we provide that to you. The same thing with, cl with cleanup kits and graffiti paint outs. Um, we work with a lot of artists and, and murals. So our focus is on community pride, you know, making sure that people feel like they want their little neck of New Zealand to be clean and green for their kids and the next generation. I think that's an easy message for people to associate with especially once they have children and so they 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 get on board it hasn't been difficult getting volunteers and retaining them i think the difficult component from for any charity is is monetary can you talk about the research how does what have you been researching so we did um a littering behavior piece of research so we looked at where people litter, not necessarily the whys, but we did ask questions during the research. You know, did you litter? Why did you litter? So it was a two-part um, piece of research. So you had one observation. So you had one person that would observe. And then you had another person that would go up to people after they had littered and not say, we just saw you litter, but they would say, you know, what do you think about your environment? And do you litter? A majority of people that were seen littering said that they did not litter. Um, majority of people that were littering, say, cigarette butts, said that they didn't view cigarette butts as litter. And I think the majority of people that were littering, a bin was less than 10 meters away. So I guess one of the takeaways was, you know, if a bin is more than 10 meters away, people are likely to litter. That was craziness. That was crazy. Um, to be fair, probably not too different from some international studies that I had looked at. But I think when it's done in, you know, a place like New Zealand, it's pretty shocking because New Zealand is 
thought to be very clean and green. And for the most part, it is. But yeah, you still have those behaviors in people. Um, we did a comprehensive council policy review with councils, looking at how many of them were able to identify budget that was spent on illegal dumping and litter. So we interviewed over half of the councils and less than 5% were actually able to ascertain a return on investment. Um, and that's because of the various contracts. So they weren't necessarily able to say how much money was being spent in that area, which is interesting because you do have a lot of people that say, why fund an organization like Keep New Zealand Beautiful? You know, it's these people need to stop doing it, but they don't necessarily understand that their taxes are already paying for this. They just don't know how much of their taxes are paying for this. And our role is to educate people not to do it and also to try to change behaviors in people that are doing it. And then the national litter audit that we did last year was the piece of research where we went to every council, did five areas. So um, we sent researchers out. They, based on the, if it was a residential roadway, highway, railway, there were different dimensions. But they would basically measure it out, peg it, um, do three sweeps, pick up all of the litter, and then go back to their hotel, um, put mats down, dump all of the litter, count it so we were able to see you know what was the highest count by item um they also weighed everything so if you had a pile of cigarettes then you put them in a pie tin and you weigh them subtracting the pie tin weight um and also volume so there were volume calculations so we were able to ascertain which areas were the most unclean um what was the highest by volume count and weight and yeah that was and and brands so our intention was not to name and shame councils or industry, but we thought that it was important because by identifying brands, you're also able to identify somewhat age groups. Mm. Can you probably don't need to go into brands, but can you give us, can you give us like a, a few of the top items? Nappies by volume. Wow. Um, so railways and highways were riddled with nappies. And I guess the, we don't know why, but the thought was, you know, if you have a, a dirty nappy in your car, you don't want to smell it. So they would roll down the window and chuck them out. Um, cigarette butts by count and by weight, illegal dumping. And railways and highways were the worst. So is it, is it passengers on trains or people just going to a track and... Well, I, I think it, it, that, that's hard to say. It wasn't people throwing stuff out of the trains. Um, but, you know, rubbish blows, too. So if, if you're at a train waiting for a train and you throw something, depending on the, the weight and the size, it will travel. But, you know, litter tends to get caught in bushes and areas like that. So sometimes it travels to our stormwater drains. Sometimes it travels far. Sometimes it doesn't travel that far. Um, so, yeah, I think probably people that were waiting for the trains, that's where the majority of it would have come from. Mm. I'm not sure uh, what advancements there are in nappy technology, but there's a few other changes in terms of packaging, you know, a shift to bioplastic uh, sort of stuff. Is that, are you noticing a, a change there? Like, um, you know, the type of rubbish and the potential impact, is that starting to shift? It's hard to say in terms of the type of rubbish because this was baseline data. So in order to be factual and state, yes, I've seen a trend and a change, um, additional research is required. 
what I can say is that I know that a lot of industry players are making a conscious and a mandatory shift in terms of packaging. So the Ministry for Environment has a focus on product stewardship, which is looking at packaging. Um, yeah, the, I think that there will be a seismic shift in the next five years in terms of what packaging looks like. But if you look at takeaway packaging, it's a prime example. Majority of it is sustainable packaging. Um, the problem is consumers dispose of it irresponsibly. So I think it's, it's a twofold combination. It's, it's looking at how can we make the packaging more sustainable, but then how can we get people to not throw it out of their window when they're driving down the road, the highway? Yeah. Yeah. It's so crazy though. But if, if people can't be asked to put stuff in the bin, which is 10, 10 meters away, you know, does it fall then on the, on the industry to make sure that that, packaging doesn't stick around for a thousand years i think industry need to be working with organizations like keep new zealand beautiful on education campaigns i mean it's it's clear that that's what's required um so i, I would put that onerous back on to industry you know and not just keep new zealand beautiful but other like-minded organizations and making sure that that um that education piece about what they're trying to achieve and, and what people need to do to help them is important um, I also think, you know, litter and illegal dumping, it's not sexy in the grand scheme of environmental issues, let's, let's face it. Um, but at the end of the day, this is probably one of the easiest things that can be changed because this is a behavior. And so if people just made a conscious effort or a decision and said, I'm not going to do this, that's one thing that if, if we were able to put ourselves out of business in that regard and focus on other areas of programming, that would probably be Keep New Zealand Beautiful's greatest achievement. And this is something so simple that people actually can change and it would make a tremendous difference to our environment. Are you optimistic for the future? I'm always optimistic for the future. Um, for Keep New Zealand Beautiful, look, it's been around for 53 years. It will be around when I'm gone. And I don't think that it's any one person. I mean, Keep New Zealand Beautiful is a movement. You know, we've, we've worked with millions of volunteers over 53 years. So... I think that there's a need to keep New Zealand beautiful. I think that there's a need for the organization and what, what we do as a collective. And I think that, you know, there are opportunities that will present themselves in the future with central government, which will put us back in the position where we were for the past three years, actually achieving our mission. Hmm. Yeah, I'm conscious that I keep going on about psychology, but do you think, and just like me getting out of the car and going for more walks and just becoming more aware of just the level of litter, do you think we've become complacent? Like, have we, have we sold ourselves the story that we live in a beautiful, clean and green country where we've kind of lost, lost touch with reality? I, maybe this is the optimism in me. I don't think so. And I say that because I work with so many members of the community that are so outraged and passionate about, you know, where they live and it needs to be tidy and it needs to be clean. But I think that this is probably a very small percentage of people. I don't have any statistics based on that. Um, but I, I don't think that it's the norm. I think for the most part, people do do the right thing and they want to do the right thing. I think that you're looking at a percentage of people that are doing the wrong thing. And so those are the ones that we need to try to change and educate and, and get them to make better decisions and better choices. You know, um, in, in New York, you know, the broken window 
thing? The, the broken window theory. Yes. Yeah. Does is that similar here? Like, if you if you uh, if you clean up the graffiti, if you you know plant and you focus on the positive and you and you kind of create this benchmark, does that help also uh, change the behaviour of uh, of the of the wider community? Absolutely. I mean, there there is research that's been done in the states. Um, you know, when a community is cleaned up it predominantly stays that way because it instills a sense of civic and community pride in people. Alternatively, if you flip that on its head, you know, once people start to dump in their community or littering becomes a common theme, then it leads to more antisocial behaviors um, such as graffiti mm. and breaking windows. Um, so, yeah, I think, look, it's important to educate the littlies because if you can instill that, that mantra, you know, that, that pride in them when they're young, then when they turn 15, you know, maybe some of those antisocial behaviors won't start to kick in. And when their mate throws something, they go, hey, pick that up. You know, that's, that's not on. Um, but I think it's also about continuing that education. And a lot of charities are focused on educating the littlies, which clearly that you have to start there. But I think that once those, you know, typical antisocial behaviors do tend to kick in, they still need to be educated. So don't stop when they're 11. Continue that education. Look at alternative programs that are still appealing to them, like Young Reporters for the Environment. Um, you know, give, give them something that still speaks to them, but just in a different way. It's interesting when you say antisocial behavior, because that's really like with the New York that would the the broken windows thing was a in an effort to combat the wider crime uh, side of things but do you think is there a link potentially between that kind of civic uh community mindedness planting a tree and i mean just is there a link somehow between that and you know potentially as you say anti-social behavior and and criminal uh activity as well down the track um, when I first came on board, we were funded by the Ministry of Justice for our anti-graffiti programs. And part and parcel of that funding was the broken windows theory in that if you make a space more appealing, more beautiful, people are less inclined to vandalize it. Um, so yeah, Paint New Zealand Beautiful was actually an inception prior to my coming on board working in with the Ministry of Justice um, to try to negate that from happening to try to in advance you know make an, an area beautify it with a mural a, a place that's normally been riddled with graffiti or high um, litter area and give the, the kids a sense of pride you know that that's a mural that's pretty cool represents the community and for the most part very few were tagged afterwards and so I do think that there is an association between the two you know if you give someone a space that's been that's been riddled with graffiti and litter and is just aesthetically unappealing. No one wants to go there or, you know, you will get the wrong, you'll attract the wrong crowd. If you give them a beautiful space where they can, you know, ride their bikes or get on their skateboard and they, they drive past a mural that speaks to them. I think that they're less inclined to have that type of behavior where it's like, Oh, I'm going to tag my name on that. You know, it's, they identify with art and art's a huge um, area that we look at. So, Paint New Zealand Beautiful, we're not just focused on deterring graffiti or, or, you know, working to cover it up. We work with schools, community groups, and local artists who submit their, you know, what makes their school special or what makes their community special. And a lot of them are young and up and coming. And, you know, the 15-year-old boy on the skateboard sees these and he's like, wow, that's really cool. Mm. So, yeah, I think that 
you know, it, it's again, it's just about making people and, and youth prideful of where they live and taking ownership of it. You know, this is, this is my Whitford. This is my Napier. This is my Hastings. Is there a, is there a community or a council that's done a particularly kick-ass job? That is a, oh, wow. We've been, we've been judging the beautiful awards for the past five weeks yeah, they've done some, all of them have done some amazing work. Um, Waihiki has a, a great reuse center. They have a soap dispensary so people can come, they can fill up. And again, the bulk use is what they're promoting, um, which lessens the packaging, obviously. And they're, they also have a great food waste diversion program. So they've partnered with a lot of the local vineyards. And so they give them all of their food scraps and their composting. And food waste is, you know, the highest, I think, when it comes to offsetting your, your carbon footprint. Hastings, we went there yesterday. They have an amazing reuse center that just opened up, or re refuse center, sorry. Um, and they're working in with youth to get them to identify, similar to what we've done in the past, you know, this is how much money we've actually spent on waste this year. And it's from littering and illegal dumping. And we could have given you X amount of skate parks. So you make a conscious choice not to do it and, and to tell others not to do it. Um, so I think Hastings do, is doing great in that regard. And then we have Wanganui and Hamilton who are up against most beautiful city this year. And yeah, that's, that one's going to be very difficult because they're both river cities and they're literally t undertaking very similar initiatives just to different scales. Um, but they're doing a lot of work on, on the river and revitalizing that and providing, you know, more homes in the city center, which again, offsets your, your carbon footprint. But also when you're talking about a small area, you have to build up now, you can't build it out. And so I think councils have been, they've been those two councils have been very proactive. Um, and then Cambridge, which is always a favorite with their tree planting initiative. So, you know, the past five weeks, we've managed to see some really cool council and community led action initiatives where it's not, I think probably five years ago, you had a lot of councils saying, you know, this is, this is the plan and this is what we're going to do. And now councils are saying, this is the plan, but we want your input. You know, is there anything that we haven't thought about? Is there any, anything that you want? If so, we're going to require a budget for, you know, an additional $5 million, help us raise it. So it, it is very much working together in partnership as opposed to maybe what that didn't look like many years ago. Brilliant. Yeah. That's cool. Well, thank you very much for your time. I'm I'm trying to end this on a positive note, but I'm st I'm still thinking about the nappies. Like it's crazy. <laughs> it's I it's you know it, it's something to throw I don't know a, a wrapper away, but to throw a nap like use nappies and expect someone else to clean that up it's nuts. I think probably the most shocking thing for me and. I was surprised when I saw that until I started to go through some of the international research. And I had gone through it before, but I was mainly looking at various methodologies. Um, and yeah, it's, it's not, we're not off. I mean, nappies is a big one globally, believe it or not. And I think probably the more surprising thing for me was just, you know, when I became a mom, so many behaviors and traits and things that I had done previously changed. Um, you know, you have to curb your alcohol intake. You're, you're looking at the world more holistically. So yeah, I was really surprised by the nappies. I was thinking, you know, I don't know many moms that would do that. Um, I think that was probably the biggest shocker. But again, it's about, 
identifying those things so that you can work with people and just be like, hey, do you realize that it takes 300 years for a nappy to break down? You know, let's maybe look at some alternatives or just don't chuck it out the window. Hmm. Brilliant. All right. I'm, I'm not sure that I want to end it quite on that, but is there, is there any advice that you can give? You mentioned greenwashing before, but for any companies, any, any industries out there who, who do want to do good by the environment, who want to be seen to be good, doing good by the environment, but, you know, are conscious of the whole uh, greenwashing perception. I think as an industry, look, just get involved. I mean, it's easy enough to take your team out and facilitate your own cleanup initiative. Outside of railways and highways, industrial was the third um, in terms of being the most unclean. And a lot of industry and businesses are in industrial areas. Take them out close to home. You know, these groups are always calling us saying, where should we go? Is there a beach? The beaches are fairly pristine here. I mean, council contracts ensure that because no one wants to work walk, walk, walk along a dirty beach. But if you stay close to home, you know, within a three-block three parameter of your office, you'll be amazed at how much rubbish you can pick up. And make it a regular thing because at the end of the day, your employees become more engaged. You know, they might start to look at some alternative cost savings, which are also green savings. Um, and, yeah, I think what makes them feel good is to – see something that they've actually achieved and say, you know what, we did that. And that's amazing. And I'd like to do that again. It's a really simple, cheap team building opportunity. So I would encourage them to get stuck in. And I would also say to any member or representative of industry or any school community group, et cetera, if you are doing great work, submit yourself, nominate yourself for our beautiful awards. It doesn't cost anything. And it's great to be recognized for something that you're doing that, that's above and beyond what you should be doing. Um, so yeah, I mean, I know that this has touched on funding and some other areas, but I guess our focus is on celebrating the small wins, especially this year, and celebrating you know, beautiful behavior and beautiful people, beautiful councils, beautiful groups. So don't be afraid to pick up the phone and call us. Everything we do is for free. Um, and if you're looking for an alignment and you actually walk the talk, um, love to hear from you in that regard as well.